The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the seventh season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution produced with our partners at WSB Radio. This season, Judgment Call. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJCBreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at ReporterJCB. Also, Please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. Were you scared? Yes, sir. Did you think you were being attacked? Yes, sir. Did you think he was going to cause you great bodily harm? Yes, sir, I did. So if someone is running through a parking lot and running at you and you yell at them to stop and they don't stop, then you can shoot them, right? If they're at the front of my car and I have less than three seconds to react and they're closing distance on me and the condition it was based on my knowledge, I did what I did to defend myself. That was so hard because he already said my son was pounding on him. He changed that story to my son was attacking him. And then he felt threatened for his life. And it's hard to sit there when someone's lying and you know they're lying. You just want them to be honest and take the consequences and go on. It drained me. We told you in Episode 3 that putting Officer Chip Olson on the witness stand at the immunity hearing was a calculated gamble. It was high risk, high reward. But one he'd have to take if he was going to get the murder charges against him dismissed. If Olson proved to be a convincing witness, the judge would find that he acted in legitimate self-defense. No murder charge. That was the high-reward part. Now, here's the high-risk part. If Olson was not a strong witness, the judge would rule that the former officer did not prove his claim of self-defense. Olson would be going to trial. And even worse, his primary defense strategy would now be sitting in the judge's trash can. Yes, he could still argue self-defense, would have to, and maybe he'd have better luck with the jury than he had with his honor. The matter was now before Judge John Paul Boulay, or J.P., which he prefers. Boulay joined the DeKalb County Superior Court bench in May 2015, so he had been a judge for less than a year when he got Olson's murder case. It took Boulay almost three months to issue his ruling, That's not terribly long in criminal cases, especially this one. But for Olson and his legal team, it must have seemed like three years. Welcome to Episode 4 of Season 7 of Breakdown, Judgment Call. Hello, I'm Bill Rankin, 
I cover courts and legal affairs for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, we're working with our friends at WSB Radio. And I'm Christian Boone. I cover law enforcement and public safety for the AJC. Judge Boulay ruled against Olson. The decision didn't just reject his self-defense claim, but questioned his very credibility. The judge said the evidence to justify the use of lethal force just wasn't there. Olson failed to show he had reason to believe Anthony Hill was about to kill or seriously injure him or anyone else. And none of the witnesses said they thought Hill posed a threat. The judge also made note of Olson's distinct size advantage over Hill, specifically about 5 inches, 40 pounds. And he said Hill was unarmed and had made no threats. Remember the controversial condition, excited delirium? Impervious to pain, superhuman strength, unlimited endurance. Boulay wasn't buying it. He wrote, despite lengthy testimony regarding the condition, not once on direct examination did Olson affirmatively state that he thought Hill suffered from the condition. The judge is right. Olson didn't mention excited delirium under direct examination, but he had described the condition under duress during cross-examination, as you just heard. Regardless, it still has to be a part of his defense at trial. Here's Judge Boulay, quote, This court cannot ignore that immediately after the shooting, Olson told Officer Anderson that Hill was attacking him and pounding on him, which even the defendant recognizes did not happen. Hill never touched the defendant, unquote. Boulay concluded, quote, because Olson did not prove by a preponderance of the evidence that he was justified in using deadly force, his motion to dismiss based on self-defense immunity is hereby denied, unquote. Here's Atlanta lawyer Esther Panich, a frequent breakdown contributor, with her take on the judge's ruling. Judges have discretion to evaluate the credibility of witnesses, just like jurors do. In this immunity motion, it's just with the judge, there is no jury. And Judge Boulay found that the defendant was not credible when he claimed that he thought his life was in danger. And the facts that he used supported his position. And now it's on to the trial. Boulay scheduled it to begin the last week of February 2019, nearly four years to the day of Anthony Hill's death. We've told you before that cops almost never go on trial for fatally shooting someone in the line of duty. In fact, it's been more than five years since it last happened in Georgia. Philip Stenson, an associate professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green University, tracks prosecutions of police officers. Here's what he's found. So since 2005, since I've been collecting data on uh, non-federal law enforcement officers across the country getting arrested, so police officers, deputy sheriffs, state troopers, We've only had a total of 98 officers who've been charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting. So it's just a handful of cases uh, each and every year. Out of those 98 officers who've been charged since uh, 2005, uh, by my count, only uh, 34 of those to date have been convicted of a crime. On average, that's slightly less than eight cases a year across the nation in which officers are charged with murder or manslaughter, and less than three cases a year in which they are convicted. So how many people are killed by police each year? The Washington Post has maintained a database on that. From 2015 to 2018, the Post found, police officers on duty killed nearly 4,000 people. Of those, only 50 officers were formally charged. That's about 1.25%. Another way to look at it, 
During those four years, more than 3,900 police killings were viewed as completely lawful. No question, many, perhaps even most of police shootings are justified. But 99% of them? In DeKalb County, the prosecution had to be feeling pretty good about its chances. They'd gotten Olson on the record. Remember, part of the prosecution's strategy will be to undermine Olson's credibility. With his extensive testimony during the immunity hearing, Olson has given the state a gift. If he says anything at trial that doesn't match up with what he said in the hearing, the prosecutors will call him out on it. Olson's lawyers knew they had their work cut out for them, and so did Chip Olson. Without a doubt, he'll need to be a much better witness if he takes the stand at trial. If I were his defense lawyer, all right, part of the strategy would be embracing everything that's bad about the case. I think that it's a mistake for him to present himself to a jury as if he did nothing wrong. I think he's going to lose credibility. That's Robert James, the former DeKalb DA who obtained the indictment. I think the way you win this case is not by going around it trying to avoid all responsibility, but it's actually going through it and embracing uh, this and calling it a mistake and not murder. I think you run the risk if you come in and say, I did nothing wrong, that jurors are going to see through that, and you're going to come off as disingenuous and arrogant, and you run the risk of being convicted for murder. We were eager to see if the defense would take up Robert James's advice. Then, of course, the breakdown curse struck again. You know, when we plan a podcast around a trial that suddenly and unexpectedly gets postponed at the last minute. It's happened enough to make me break down, and it's about to happen again. It came in the form of an innocuous flyer for a 5K run benefiting domestic violence victims. Little more than two weeks before the trial was to start, the DeKalb District Attorney's Office sent out a mass email promoting the race. Judge Boulay had donated $1,000 from his campaign fund to the domestic violence shelter. That automatically made him a sponsor of the race. Obviously, the judge was supporting a worthy cause. But the flyer featured a prominent photo of District Attorney Sherry Boston, the event's host. And right under her picture, Boulay's campaign logo. Well, that's the crime of the century, Bill. Most people listening to this must be thinking, what's the big deal? But for judges, perception can mean everything. The flyer makes it look like Boulay is endorsing Boston or her event. And many of the cases he presides over are brought by her office. Could that compromise the perception of Boulay's impartiality? Well, no one really believed that Boulay was trying to win favor of the DA. No, I don't think he was at all. Yeah, I guess it was just a bad look, though. And even Boulay agreed. Yeah. On February 11th, two weeks before trial, Boulay recused himself from Olson's case. He said judges must disqualify themselves from cases in which their impartiality might reasonably be questioned. So now what? The case suddenly became a judicial hot potato. It was assigned the following day to DeKalb Judge Asha Jackson. She didn't last 24 hours. In her first and only order, she recused herself. The next day, the case was assigned to Judge Courtney Johnson. Just hours later, she recused herself as well. This made me suddenly wonder just how many judges were on the DeKalb County Superior Court bench. So I looked it up. Ten. Okay, seven to go. The highest profile case in the county was then assigned to Judge Letitia Deer Jackson. She had been on the bench for just five weeks. She hadn't even attended the required training for new judges. One week after she took the case, on February 24th, the judge held a status conference. She acknowledged that she was not up to speed on the details, 
except that a police officer facing murder charges was involved. For the Hill family, making the nearly five-hour drive from South Carolina, the delay was frustrating. They'd already booked hotel rooms and arranged time off from work to attend the trial. So how much longer would they have to wait? A few weeks? A month? Most assumed it would start no later than July. Try six and a half months. Dear Jackson set the new trial date for September 23rd. That's about how long the trials of Ross Harris and Tex McIver were delayed. Yeah, the breakdown curse. It's relentless. Hill's girlfriend, Bridget Anderson, first found out about the new trial date when I called her seeking reaction. I think I threw my phone when Christian told me um, that the final date was September 23rd. I was just like, and pissed off. I tried to say that nicely, but I was just pissed off about it. Regardless, the family says they'll be there when the trial finally gets underway. For Kathy Olson, the delay was almost too much to bear. Just a roller coaster. Just a complete roller coaster. You're like, what's going to happen next, right? The situation with Judge Boulay was, really? Like, what's ne- what is going to happen next? And it's, it's difficult. Some people maybe can handle that really well. In this particular situation, not, not so well. Um, did the best we could. And we're continuing to do, to do the best we can. Just days after Dear Jackson set the new trial date, about two dozen people showed up on the steps of the DeKalb County Courthouse. It was a breezy, sunny Saturday afternoon, March 9th, the fourth anniversary of Anthony Hill's death. The group included members of the Georgia NAACP and Black Lives Matter. Many held up posters, some of Anthony Hill, while others featured photos of others who had been shot and killed by police. It's a simple demand. Justice is a very simple demand. And the community has spoken on numerous occasions, and they continue to speak today. That's Gerald Griggs, vice president of the Georgia NAACP. You may remember him in Breakdown Season 6, a jury of his peers. He was Nicholas Benton's lawyer. He's also made a name for himself as a civil rights activist in Atlanta. So we want justice, starting with the life sentence for this officer, to send a message throughout the state that we will not stand for police brutality, especially for our brothers and sisters with disabilities and our veteran brothers and sisters. So we're demanding justice. Bridget Anderson was also there. She's always been politically engaged, but in the four years since Anthony was killed, she's transformed into something of a crusader. She had a list of three demands designed to help prevent another tragedy. A triage system for 911 operators so they can ask callers the right questions. More mobile crisis units that send out mental health professionals and improved crisis training for DeKalb police. These are three simple acts that we have that can have a future impact on DeKalb. I know that Anthony didn't die in vain, and he'll be proud of the work that we're doing today and ensuring this doesn't happen to someone else. This is Breakdown. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. DeKalb County's police training is at the center of a federal lawsuit filed in 2015 by Hill's family. 
The lawsuit claims that DeKalb failed to adequately prepare Olson for the situation he faced on March 9, 2015. DeKalb County was already dealing with a large number of mentally ill residents even before soldiers began returning from combat in Afghanistan and Iraq. About 40,000 veterans called DeKalb home, and many faced mental health challenges. But only about half of all returning vets seek treatment. DeKalb is a magnet for those who do because it's home to one of the region's largest VA facilities. The lawsuit filed by Hill's family says the county knew its officers would be among the first to respond to those experiencing a mental health crisis. Without proper training, the suit says, officers would mistakenly believe a mentally disturbed person posed a threat. This is not necessarily the police department's fault. In fact, it's something that that was kind of forced on them. But the truth of the matter is that uh, police officers in the U.S. are often first responders to mentally health, mental health crises, and they need specialized training and they need to understand how to uh, interact effectively with the mentally ill. That's Kurt Kastorf, one of the lawyers representing Hill's family. In 2007, a special grand jury was convened in response to fatal shootings by DeKalb police, some of them involving the mentally ill. A year later, that grand jury made clear what steps the county needed to take. It said all law enforcement officers needed additional training in how to recognize and manage individuals with mental illness and developmental disabilities. It also called for police to be better trained in how to calm down tense situations, to de-escalate. The lawsuit filed by Hill's family said the findings of that grand jury, six years earlier, put the county on notice. It also said the county's progress in implementing the recommendations had been, quote, glacial at best, unquote. When Anthony Hill was fatally shot, only 100 of the roughly 760 police officers in DeKalb had crisis intervention training for encounters with the mentally ill. That's 13%. To be clear, we're not just talking about veterans. Roughly one in five Americans suffer from some type of mental illness. So it's no surprise that nationally, and here in Georgia, police officers come in contact with the mentally ill all the time. Unfortunately, some of those encounters turn deadly. Melissa Morabito teaches at UMass at Lowell's School of Criminology and Justice Studies. She specializes in police responses to public health problems. We know based on the, um, the numbers that I've seen, there's between 8 and 20 percent of calls for service that involve people with mental illnesses. I can tell you that in the last, you know, 15 years, I, I feel like the situation has, has gotten worse overall. And I think because so much of the focus has been on the police and not on the mental health side. Groundbreaking reporting by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution showed that between 2010 and 2015, one out of every four fatal police shootings in Georgia involved someone who was mentally ill. By 2015, DeKalb still wasn't mandating crisis intervention training for his officers. But during his eight years in the force, Chip Olson always made time for training. He had accumulated 2,000 hours. That's a full year's worth of work weeks. Included were 40 hours of mental health training. So why did his encounter with Anthony Hill go so terribly wrong? Could it be the quality of the training, not the quantity? One of our main concerns in this case is that uh, DeKalb provides officers with uh, guidance on how to interact with the mentally ill, and then it separately trains on a concept called excited delirium, a, a somewhat controversial concept in the field, the notion that there are certain people who 
uh, through drug abuse or other circumstances have reached a state where their body is breaking down and they are temporarily impervious to pain uh, and teach officers that this is a scary thing, that they may not be able to subsume the individual. And then when you look at the characteristics they tell an officer to look for, they are virtually identical to the characteristics they look for in dealing uh, with a mental health crisis. And so there's no basis for an officer to distinguish between a entirely non-threatening, mentally ill individual who needs assistance and somebody who might be a danger to the officer. That's the Hill family's lawyer again. So it turns out that excited delirium, that controversial defense that we talked about in episode three, is actually taught to officers and to cab and in many other police departments as well. We'd love to tell you what DeKalb County's police department has to say about all this. We gave them several weeks to answer questions about how they trained their officers then and how they train them now. They first said we couldn't interview their sitting police chief, citing the ongoing litigation. So we sent them written questions instead. They still hadn't replied by the time we're recording this episode. Some of these questions were very general. and the Hills family lawsuit they are citing for denying us access to the chief, its claims against the county were dismissed earlier this year by a federal judge. It seems pretty important, right? One of Metro Atlanta's largest police forces won't talk about how it deals with the mentally ill. If they get back to us after we record, we'll be sure to let you know. Well, if DeKalb County won't talk about excited delirium training, lawyers for Hills family certainly will. They contend that training can raise the temperature at an already tense scene at a time when things need to calm down. Here's Darren Somerville, co-counsel for the Hill family. The, the training creates an impression in the mind of the officers who are likely to be the first contact with someone who is mentally ill, that this is someone in a state of excited delirium, that we know that typical physical force, you know, hands, isn't going to work because they're impervious or they display superhuman strength. And so essentially escalates things to lethal force almost immediately. Or that's the, that is the training is that we can't let this person get near us. We know that that won't work. We can't stop him with those sorts of near-term encounters. So the firearm is the sort of default option. The cab may not have taken the lead on crisis intervention training, but they do now require all of its officers to take the course. Other departments around the nation are trying some innovative approaches you may be surprised to learn which departments are leading the way. Police in Birmingham, Alabama, for example, send community service officers on calls involving the mentally ill. And what community service officers do is they are not sworn police officers, but they're like licensed clinical social workers who will be dispatched to a scene where there's a person with mental illness in crisis and they'll either ride with a police officer or they will meet the police officer there at the scene. That's Risden Slate, a criminology professor at Florida Southern College. And their argument is that, you know, you can't train a police officer in 40 hours to know everything there is to know about mental health and mental illness. But these licensed clinical social workers have had extensive training in uh, dealing with mental illness. And so they are kind of like the eyes and ears for the officer on the scene, and then the officer is there to provide protection as needed. A plan for police in Memphis, Tennessee, calls for crisis intervention teams. Ten percent of officers on the force receive special training and become the go-to people for mental health calls. 
Boston police sent a clinician with an officer on calls for service involving the mentally ill. The goal? De-escalation. But staffing these positions is a challenge for even the most well-funded departments, as Alex Picciro explains. He's a professor of criminology at the University of Texas at Dallas. In the city of Dallas, there was been some work done where on some calls, police officers are actually um, going and being paired with a mental health uh, crisis intervention specialist on some of those calls for service. That's a really intriguing thing, but potentially partnering with the police department and then attend to those calls for service with a unified front. Um, not a lot of departments do that because it's a, it's a big resource issue, um, but I think that's a really clever idea, and I think trying piloting, piloting that kind of stuff out um, to the extent that departments are willing to do that and mental health agencies are willing to do that, I think would be a really, really good thing to do. Chip Olson had no such support. He entered the heights of Shambly apartment complex with little information about Anthony Hill. All he knew was what dispatchers told him, which wasn't much. And these dispatchers had no mental health crisis training. There's one thing we haven't touched on, and it's pretty central to the whole discussion. Yes, police officers more and more are the first responders on calls involving people with mental illness. But should they be? Are we asking too much of the police? Here's Professor Melissa Morabito again. I think that if the mental health system was better funded, then the police would be seeing fewer people. Uh, I think that we want police to be very well trained in de-escalation, and we want them to be able to recognize symptoms of mental illness. And, you know, in those instances where they do encounter somebody in the community, they should know, uh, you know, how to react in those situations. But I would like to see them much rarer than they are now. Um, And I think the only way to do that is better mental health treatment. That certainly would have helped Anthony Hill, who by the beginning of 2015 had reached a breaking point in dealing with his mental health. Bridget Anderson recalled some tough conversations. He started going back to the doctor, I think around January of 2015. And um, that's when we sat down and I said, I think that you need medication because you're either super depressed and you won't get out of the bed, or some weeks you're super manic and you won't go to sleep. And um, we cried about it, prayed about it, and we said that, okay, this is the best decision. So Anthony went back on his meds and initially he was back to his old self. I believe that it worked at first and then the symptoms were his tongue was swelling up and I remember seeing it on FaceTime and I was like, dude, like, Maybe you should call to tell them to lower your dosage or switch medicines completely because I don't want you to wake up one day and you can't breathe because your tongue is so swollen. And then he was like, yeah, it's affecting my singing and my pronunciation, so I'm not sure what to do about recording. And I'm like, I don't know, um, but I know that you have, you know, an appointment coming up, so maybe you should chill out on it for now and then we can figure it out. And then I think he, I think he quit cold turkey because his tongue was swelling so bad. Bridget says she feels like the VA failed Anthony. I wish that the VA kind of would have gave him more direction or had like a helpline for people that are on medicine and they can call and say, hey, this is happening. Or, hey, don't quit this cold turkey because this can happen. If you have this symptom, then do, then do this or do that but they didn't. They just kind of gave him the mix, the medicine. It was like, hey, take this once a day. Darren Somerville, one of the lawyers for Hill's family, 
said perhaps the saddest thing about the whole episode is how easily it could have been avoided. Anthony Hill was a wonderful human being. He served his country well uh, and had a tremendous amount to give. Uh, DeKalb County uh, obviously wants to do right by its citizens and everyone else. Uh, and then you've got an officer who probably wasn't the person that should have been out there on the front lines uh, and certainly not with the training that he had. It's just tragic on a number of levels, not only the loss of life, but so many ways it could have been avoided whether the crisis intervention team was first, whether or not there was dual response by an ambulance team, whether or not there was a backup call, whether or not there was better information taken by the uh, emergency dispatch. Any of those things would have solved all this or prevented all this, I should say. Next, on Breakdown. Before Olson's murder trial, I get to hear a jury's deliberations on the case. If he had a, a new gun, man, if he was coming like at him with drugs, a gun, man. he absolutely was Described justified. If he person. had a knife, absolutely. He knew he could harm him enough mm-hmm. to kill him. I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Christian Boone. Thanks for joining us again on Breakdown. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Bill Rankin and Christian Boone. Produced by Shannon McCaffrey. Edited by Richard Hallex. Sound designed by Shane Backler at WSB Radio. Original music composed and recorded by Bo Emerson and Anthony Hill. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Monica Richardson, Sean McIntosh, Brad Schrade, Pete Corson, Pete Spriggs, Chris Camp, Veronica Waters, and all the great people at the AJC. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous six seasons of Breakdown. And of course, thanks so very much for listening. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh.